1: Right at midnight, President Trump imposed new tariffs on $200 billion
2: worth of Chinese imports to the U.S. China is imposing new tariffs on U.S. goods today. We're
3: hearing louder calls coming from Republican lawmakers to completely ban Huawei and SMIC.
1: Beijing wants more business with Europe, but there's growing skepticism in the EU.
0: Tensions between China and the West, specifically Europe and the United States, continue to grow. And as international world events add uncertainty to the mix... Israel has formally declared war after that unprecedented multi-pronged terror attack from Hamas. The long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive is stretching into its fifth month.
3: Mr. Putin said that peace would only be possible after what he called Kyiv's
0: demilitarization. Bloomberg Economics and Bloomberg Business Week took a dive into trade and investment data and identified five nations that are coming out as winners of these new geopolitical fault lines. To find out which countries these are and what's happening there, Bloomberg's Mava Cousin in Zurich and Sean Donnan in Washington take us through the results of these data and their implications. I'm your host, Scarlett Fu. Today on The Big Take, which countries are benefiting from the reshuffling of global supply chains? Guys, it's so great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. So let's get started. Bloomberg identified five countries emerging as important links in the global economy. These are not economic powerhouses. They're not even budding powerhouses. Instead, you call them Connectors, what do you mean by that?
4: So I think one of the things we think about when we think about the global economy is often the relationship between the largest economies, right? If when we talk about globalization, when we talk about how people are getting along in the global economy, we often think of the U.S. and China or the U.S. and EU or the EU and China. And the reality is actually that increasingly we're starting to see these smaller economies that are kind of setting themselves up as you could call them pit stops. You could call them extra links in the supply chain we tend to call them connectors because that's where we are seeing an increasing amount of globalization take place it's no longer in many cases a bilateral relationship between big economies as a result of all sorts of things from tariffs to geopolitics we're seeing a lot of trade a lot of investment take a diversion on the way between big economies through these connector economies
0: I like the way you describe that. If you think of global trade like an airplane flight, political and economic tensions have resulted in there no longer being any direct flights between the U.S. and China or the U.S. and Russia or other countries. You now need to change planes somewhere first. These are kind of forced stopovers. Is that one way of thinking about this, Meva?
5: Yeah, it's when we're thinking about it, I would say that there is still quite a lot of uh, direct flights between the US and China in terms of trade of goods. When we've looked at the numbers, it is clear that uh, on the products that have been targeted by the trade war since 2019, there has been a big drop in Chinese exports to the US and US imports from China, but they still get a lot of goods directly from China. So the US is still importing a lot those connectors, those hubs in between the big makers, the big producers, and the big buyers are taking an increasing role in the global supply chain. So we are seeing some lengthening of the global supply chains with an extra stop in some cases.
4: Another way of thinking about it, if you're talking about flights, is that those direct flights have just gotten more expensive. So more people are taking indirect flights through hubs so you know if we're talking about places like vietnam and mexico and you're thinking about the u.s kind of domestic airline network they're kind of the atlantas and chicago's of the world
0: when you talk about countries like mexico like vietnam how did they become so critical in the current global economy is it because they are a clear member of team china or team usa or team europe or is that too simplistic
4: I think it depends on the individual economies. A lot of it has to do with free trade relationship and free trade agreements. For example, Mexico, it being part of what used to be called NAFTA has made a huge difference in its economic relationship with the United States and Canada. It is a key part of a North American supply chain. But one of the things we've seen in recent years, for example, is a lot of Chinese companies start to invest in Mexico where they are producing for the U.S. market. They still wanna export to the U.S., they're just doing it from factories in Mexico. It's the same thing with Vietnam. Vietnam for years has been building its trade relationship. Since the 1990s, it's been building its economic relationships with both the U.S. and China. I don't think you'd put them in either Team China or Team USA, both teams are trying to make sure they have a good relationship with Vietnam.
5: And I think some of those relationships actually predated uh, tensions and building of tensions in geopolitics globally. I think if you think of Mexico or Vietnam, these are countries that have started, uh, Mexico in particular, emerging as very important manufacturing hubs. One, Vietnam, because it was very close to China, the factory of the world, and the other one because it was very close to the US, which is the market of the world. In addition, you have Poland, of course, which benefits from the two aspects. It's very close to Germany, a very large manufacturers, and it's also part of the EU single market, so a very large consumer market. So I think those are the sort of benefits from those economies. And now they are, I think, in a more polarized global world those advantages are becoming even more important. And I think, as you said, Sean, they are neither Team China or Team US, and in a way they are trying to stay as neutral as possible because that's in their own advantage. To a large extent, it's also in the advantage of the US and China themselves as it sort of smooths the relationship and the shocks between them.
0: And I'm so glad you brought up Poland. Uh, So right now we have Vietnam, Mexico, Poland. There's also Indonesia and Morocco. Meva, you crunched the numbers. You took a look at the combined economic output and input of
5: these countries. What do they look like? So they are about 4% of global GDP together. So that's broadly the size of Germany. It's 4 trillion USD in 2022. So it's not a very large economic block, but it's starting to make some size. But at the same time, they have clearly punched above their weights when it comes to investment and trade. If you look at the number of greenfield investments, so very quickly, greenfield investment is those uh, foreign direct investment projects into a new project, a new factory. So it's really the sort of trend of production in the future. So that's a very good indicator where things like the big factories of the future, basically. In 2022, I think those countries got almost 10% of greenfield investment together. So 4% of GDP, 10% of greenfield investment, and they also probably represented about 12% of the world exports of goods. So you can see that these are very foreign investment, trade-oriented economies. So in terms of what these countries have in common, you mentioned proximity,
0: you mentioned manufacturing hub. You also mentioned this ability to draw investment from foreign companies that are looking to expand their footprint, maybe diversify their supply chain. Is there anything else that we should think about in terms of what these countries share in common?
4: Yeah, look, trade deals are a big part of the story. And I think in the case of Morocco, for example, it has a trade agreement with the United States. And as a result of that trade agreement, companies that invest there are able to take advantage of the benefits of the inflation reduction act and all the subsidies and incentives that are in that when it comes to things like electric vehicle production and so on so morocco sits you know at the top of africa has free trade relationships with the us also with the eu and that means that it becomes the kind of like mexico A hub for investment a hub for production and it really is looking forward and they really are trying very hard to position themselves in terms of this kind of electrification this is the other context for all of this is we have this enormous transition happening in the global economy from fossil fuels to green energy and a lot of these countries are finding a way to take advantage of that
5: There has been many studies actually looking at what are the drivers that can explain how a country can raise its stakes in the global value chains. And there are lots of things, proximity, trade deals, language can help as well, having a common language with one of the big importers or exporters. The quality of infrastructure and institutional quality generally helps a lot. Cheaper labor costs, of course, and that's probably the sort of thing you think about when you think about Mexico versus the U.S. or Vietnam versus China. So there are lots of drivers of potential success in global value chains that have clearly benefited those five economies. After the break, which countries in Asia and Africa are benefiting from tensions
0: between China and the West? We've talked a little bit broadly about these countries, but I want to take a deeper dive into Vietnam because Vietnam's positioning is really interesting. Its role as connector, it's always been there, but it's been supercharged since Donald Trump, the former president, launched his trade war against China. Can you talk a little bit about how Vietnam's role has
4: evolved? vietnam's economic rebirth really started happening in the 1990s when it normalized relations with the united states remember they had been for decades after the vietnam war had been kind of frozen out the u.s and vietnam did not have diplomatic relations and what we saw when that happened in the early 1990s is very quickly An initial surge in investment and people looking at producing in Vietnam, it's a big economy in its own right or a big population center in its own right. But what we saw during the Trump administration was another acceleration in that as we had the Trump administration put these tariffs on goods from China. And so a lot of people started shifting production. And that is happening to this day. It's still playing out. One of the places that our reporters visited as part of this project is, you know, literally these rice fields in Northern Vietnam that are being turned into factories for Foxconn that will make MacBooks. You know, there's other companies that'll make AirPods. All of your iDevices, we think of them often as coming from China. A growing number of them are gonna come from other countries like Vietnam. So Vietnam is very much focused around the kind of tech supply chain, consumer tech supply chain. One of the important things to point out, and I think this is really where the connector label comes in, is that a lot of these factories are being run by the same suppliers who have factories in China now, like Foxconn. And that, in fact, in some cases, these are Chinese suppliers who are setting up in vietnam so china doesn't get taken out of the equation just because production shifts to vietnam
0: so Mava, can you talk us through some of the numbers when you look at export numbers
5: import numbers what do they reveal in terms of vietnam's role vietnam is one of the smallest of those five connectors it's actually i think the only smallest one would be morocco So it's quite a small economy in terms of size, but it's been growing extremely rapidly. And their trade numbers have been on the rise for quite a few years already. What we did for the analysis is that we looked at how much of the global trade they had in all the different products in 2017, and then we compared how much they got, like how much they had increased their market shares in different products by 2022. And clearly, Vietnam was one where we had seen near 60% overperformance in exports. That means their trade has been growing much faster than that of the rest of the world. And in the meantime, they had been receiving, and that has been the case for the last 10 years, a lot more greenfield investment. So what we are seeing in Vietnam is that a lot of investment arrived in the early 2010s and is now at maturity. So it's really boosting their export numbers and supporting their manufacturing capacity.
4: Vietnam's experts to the United States have almost tripled in the last five years. Their imports from China have almost doubled in the last five years.
0: Let's talk about another Asian country, not so much a neighbor, but in the same region in Southeast Asia. And this would be Indonesia, which, of course, has a large population and a lot of natural resources. And I think that's a critical component here. Sean, you mentioned earlier about the greenification of the global economy. What role does Indonesia play in that greenification?
4: Indonesia has a lot of the things that the world needs to make electric vehicles. We're talking about things like nickel. What they've done is they've positioned themselves studiously as a kind of neutral party. If you remember going back in history, Indonesia was a founding member of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War, which refused to take sides. So we see these really interesting kind of corporate marriages taking place in places like Indonesia. Earlier this year, Ford signed a deal with a Chinese cobalt producer and Brazil's Vale, which is an enormous miner, to develop and process nickel via a mine in Indonesia. And that was very much something that was brokered by the Indonesian government. They're trying very hard to make themselves a kind of essential stop or an essential source for the electric vehicle supply chain, for the green energy supply chain.
0: To be clear, they're not actively choosing between the U.S. or China, are they? They're kind of actively courting both countries.
4: Absolutely, I mean, uh, President Joko Widodo, who's really behind this, was in the U.S. earlier this year, and his message was very clearly, we want more U.S. investment in Indonesia. And at the same time, they're getting lots of Chinese investment there. And the U.S. is not the only Western or G7 economy that they're courting. They want investment from everywhere. And if anything, their complaint is that, you know, on the U.S. or on the Western side, some investors have been slowed to come to Indonesia and aren't quite balancing out the investment that they're seeing from China.
0: Mava, you mentioned earlier Morocco being the smallest of the five connector countries that Bloomberg has identified. Yet when it comes to the car industry and the EV industry, it's playing an increasingly important role. Can you tell us a little bit about the basics of Morocco's economy and how, therefore, that puts it in a very advantageous position given the current state of the
5: fragmented global economy? It's really the car industry and the shift to the electrical vehicles mean that actually car manufacturers from Europe, Stellantis in particular, and also some of the German ones, have to make big investments. They have to renew their equipment stock, and that's a very good opportunity for those countries that can benefit from these new investments. The benefit. the manufacturers are looking for those lower labor costs. In some cases, in the case of Morocco, you have also a better access to some of the natural resources. So that makes them a very good destination for new investments. And that's what we're seeing currently in Morocco.
0: And Sean, the free trade agreements that you mentioned earlier, this really comes into play when it comes to Morocco. And it's something that maybe was not planned, but has worked out pretty well.
4: Absolutely. So the u.s and morocco have quietly had a free trade agreement in place for many years it didn't quite matter as much as it does today in the past and the reason it matters today is because we're talking about billions of dollars in investment that is going into morocco in battery plants and other kind of parts of the electric vehicle supply chain and One of the big reasons for that is that free trade agreement and the fact that that free trade agreement makes things that are produced in Morocco eligible for the tax rebates and the other incentives that you have under the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a big part of the Biden administration's effort to encourage the development of the green economy.
0: Not to mention the fact that Morocco is home to the world's largest reserves of phosphate, which is a key ingredient in rechargeable cells used in EVs. I struggle to keep track of all the different ingredients in these EV uh, vehicles because there are so many different components and you have to go all over the world to get them.
4: One of the things that we are seeing today in the world of electric vehicles and particularly in terms of batteries is a huge amount of innovation, which means that some of the key ingredients for today's batteries may not be the key ingredients for the next generation of batteries. That is a potential vulnerability for some of these connector economies.
0: Coming up, a closer look at the fruits of foreign investment for Poland and Mexico.
1: Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
0: Let's focus in on what's happening in Poland, because there are several countries here where we talk about their wealth of natural resources, whether it's Morocco, whether it's Indonesia. In Poland, are there natural resources to speak of here, or is Poland critical because of its geographic position, positioned in Eastern Europe between the West and Russia, but also a low-cost center?
4: The fact is, is that since the end of the Cold War, poland has positioned itself as a manufacturing hub within europe and has become a really important part of the production process for german and other european automakers and now that we have this transition happening in the auto industry it is again trying to take advantage of that and again you know like other countries it's trying to make sure that it's not just producing parts but that it's actually taking full advantage And so there's even an effort underway to produce their own national vehicle with help from a Chinese company, it should be said, and move up the value chain. We have seen in the last five years, the value of China's exports to Poland double. We also, in that same period, have seen Poland's exports to other EU countries go up by 56%. In other words, it's again that connector relationship. We're seeing significant growth in trade coming in and trade going out.
0: Let's cross the Atlantic and go over to Mexico, which is the U.S.'s southern neighbor. So geography is certainly a benefit for Mexico. Also, the fact that it's got such a close trade relationship with the U.S. for decades now through NAFTA and then the successor to NAFTA, But also it is a source of natural resources as well, with the oil industry very well developed in Mexico. Tell us a little bit about how the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. has changed just over the past couple of years.
4: Since the Trump administration started putting in tariffs, we saw a similar phenomenon in Mexico that we saw in Vietnam, and that is that companies in the U.S. who were reliant on parts coming from China, and it's often a case of parts rather than finished goods shifted production to Mexico. And what we've seen happen since is the Chinese suppliers that used to benefit from that relationship move their investment and invest heavily in Mexico. Tesla is building a Gigafactory in Mexico and alongside it we're seeing Chinese companies that hope to supply that company build their own factories. We also are seeing Chinese workers move to Mexico to train Mexican workers and Chinese managers there. We think of the US-Mexico relationship which goes back and forth and is often difficult whether it's because of the drug trade or because of what is happening with immigration and the southern border. But, you know, the fact is, is that there are other players in that relationship that make Mexico much more of a connector economy rather than simply a kind of outpost to the United States and corporate America.
0: With all these Chinese companies setting up shop in Mexico, in the official numbers, does that count as a Mexican company or a Chinese company? Does it even matter?
4: This is where, you know, how we count these things gets very complicated. So, you know, there are ownership structures. A lot of countries around the world, and we see this in Mexico as well, you know, set up joint ventures with local partners. And so, you know, it's a part Chinese, part Mexican company in many cases. There are some full subsidiaries in Mexico of Chinese companies. But when those goods hit the border... Those imports from Mexico, whether they are produced by a Chinese company, a European company, or an American company, they all count as imports from Mexico. And that's where sometimes the data can be misleading and sometimes, you know, when we're thinking about globalization and what is happening, we focus on that headline data and we miss what is happening below.
5: And that's why we are very grateful to institutions like the OECD who try to actually join the dots between those different exports and imports and see exactly where the value added is coming from. And when you think in terms of the impact of the economies of becoming connectors, it means they don't capture the full value of those new exports because they have to import more to be able to construct them, assemble them in some cases, and then export them. It's not just free There is some assembling or some transformation going on. So it's still quite a big benefit for those economies in terms of activity, of jobs, of taxes, collection, things like that.
0: So looking ahead, how secure are we in thinking of these countries as connector countries that are so essential? Or are they more vulnerable than we realize because as technology changes, they're not in a position to keep taking advantage of their position in the global economy?
4: So a lot of this is going to depend on the individual economies and how much they rely on certain natural resources, whether it's phosphate in Morocco or nickel in Indonesia. But I think, you know, one of the common phenomenons that we see across these economies is a desire to get into the manufacturing game, to move up the value chain, and that kind of bodes well for the future. There's absolutely a vulnerability in terms of innovation and disruption and what changes in the future in terms of our needs for minerals and so on. But there's also another reality, which is, you know, we looked at these five economies, they were kind of the top of our list, but they're not the only ones trying to be connectors in this new global economy. And so we're going to see more competition to be these connectors in the global economy from other countries. And governments work very hard to attract investment from both the U.S. and China, from the European Union, from Japan, from big companies all over the world. We're also going to see big companies all over the world kind of leverage the power that they have to get more incentives and benefits. And, you know, there is a risk that we will see a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of taxation or industrial subsidies to get all of this investment flowing around the world. The big takeaway going forward about all this is for a decade or more, people have been writing about the end of globalization. Or been talking about deglobalization or slobalization and so on. What we see with these economies is evidence that kind of globalization has been pretty durable and that actually it always finds a way, and companies always find a way to get around even barriers like tariffs, countries put up and to deal with things like geopolitics.
5: One of the vulnerabilities for these countries is still that so far, I think they have managed to stay neutral to not be aligned with either the US or China. And of course for them, if the tensions ratchet up, we have more of a decoupling between two blocks. If they are forced to choose side or if investors choose side for them because they go for the safest place, then it's going to be more challenging for some of these economies. A country like Poland, for example, at the heart of the European Union is probably quite a safe bet for investors. Countries like Vietnam sitting so close from China, geographically and geopolitically, when you look at UN votes, for example, could be more at risk of a flight to safety from some of the investors looking to go to proper French shoring.
0: I like what Sean said about how companies always find a way to get around whatever barriers or restrictions are put up. And in many cases, they're using these connector countries to do so does that actually add to the economic value overall when you tally it all up? I mean, it makes everything look like there's more trade, there's more investment, even if you're doing it in a more roundabout way.
4: There's another way of looking at it. There's the kind of consumer end of that, which is when stuff takes more stops on the way to getting to you, the consumer, that inevitably means higher costs for the consumer and higher costs for companies and so on and it's a less efficient way of producing. And so these connector economies, absolutely, we're gonna see them adding to global growth. We're gonna see adding to flows of trade, but you know, there's also this kind of negative impact of all that, which is all of this is gonna cost us more. It means that that television, that iPhone, those AirPods, that electric vehicle all may end up costing us a little bit more than it would otherwise.
5: My view is that it's actually a second best. It's quite good that we can have those step hubs in between the main economies when they start imposing very large trade war tariffs or things like that. For example, you look at some very large model of the global economies, you realize that you can split the world into two economic blocks as long as you keep a neutral block in between the so global costs or manageable or contained in terms of GDP because these neutral countries play a cushioning role between. You have losses because in a way you have this extra stop that doesn't really add any value, but is just the sort of second best to importing and exporting directly between countries, but the costs are contained. As soon as you split a word, Without neutral countries in between, so you really have the world split between two economic blocks, the global models start to find much higher shocks to the global economy, much higher costs, because then you have a lot of inefficiencies whereby you have too much investment in China relative to demand in Chinese block, and you have to invest a lot in the rest of the world, and you have to invest in things where you're not actually so good at doing, instead of investing in things where you are better. At, so you don't exploit your comparative advantage as much as you used to. So you are all big losses.
0: Sean, thank you so much for joining us from Washington. Fantastic story.
4: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
0: Mava. really appreciate your giving us insight. And thank you for staying up late to speak with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Bloomberg CarPlay, or wherever you listen. And, of course, we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bloomberg.net. This episode was produced by Federica Romaniello with production support from Sam Gebauer. Rafael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Scarlett Fu. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take.